0: Morning and turn with me to Matthew 22, Matthew 22. And this morning as I just sang about the Lord Jesus Christ being our anchor, well we need to ask the question as Jesus asked the question of those who were challenging Him in His day, Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? Matthew chapter 21, we'll be looking at verses 41 through 46. You know, at the heart of the Christian message is the question, who is Jesus Christ? Someone might say, he's the Son of God. And here we could discuss something of the deity of Christ and how he gave evidence of being God and the claims to deity made by Christ and His disciples. Someone else might say, well, He's the Son of Mary. Here we could talk about the humanity of Christ and set forth the doctrine of the Incarnation and the reason Christ became a human being. And then you might even hear, well, He's the brother of Socrates. Now that's an interesting statement. And here we would compare Jesus with Socrates, making it clear that Socrates was merely a man and a troubled one at that, while Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Now we cannot presume that people know who Jesus Christ is. Not even in our own community. The Muslims think he is a prophet. Christian science says he was a mere man living out the divine ideal. Hare Krishnas believe he was another guru. Jehovah Witnesses claim that he's created being known as Michael. The Mormons call him the spirit brother of Lucifer. Unitarians say he was just really only a man. And we can cross paths with any one of these groups and more in our community and society. This in these days, the great sticking point of the discussion. Is this very question here? Who is Jesus Christ? And until one crosses that great question, there is no hope of understanding why we exist or even our purpose in this life. One's understanding and belief concerning Jesus Christ affects everything in life and eternity. So, in the answer to the question, it cannot be taken lightly. This is an answer to the question uh, that we cannot ignore at least without dire consequences. Who is Jesus Christ? Christ Himself will ask this question with different words in our text here. How will you answer His question this morning? Notice with me, first of all, questions to think about. Our text here contains four questions. What do you think concerning the Christ? Whose son is He? How then uh, does David by the Spirit call him Lord? And if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now the first question that Jesus asks, puts uh, them on the spot, and gives gives consideration to the burning question of the day. The second would have have been routine, with even a child knowing the answer. And the third would have raised a question that, Most had not even considered. The last leaves no doubt where Jesus was heading with this question to lead to the logical conclusion that He was the Son of God. And so look with me, first of all, at the logical question. The logical question. This was uh, the last week before the Lord's crucifixion. For three years, Jesus had made His mark throughout Israel. Stories about Him feeding the multitudes with a few fish and loaves, healing people of diseases, casting out demons, healing the crippled, and even raising the dead began uh, became the talk of the day. And I think that it's safe to assume that everyone in Israel, except maybe a hermit in the mountain, would have heard about Jesus of Nazareth. The man born blind that Jesus gave sight expressed the sentiment of so many since the world began, was not it heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. And certainly the way he repeatedly cast out demons made it very clear that he did not come from the devil. If he was from God, which surely the evidence makes clear, then the hearers had to take seriously his own claims. He accepted the messianic accolades offered by the crowds lining the streets of Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 21. He exercised authority to cleanse the temple, calling it my house, also in Matthew 21. In explaining why the children in the temple praising him as the Messiah, he very clearly claimed divine origin. He said, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise. And so Jesus raises the logical question for the religious leaders to answer. They had questioned him about the taxes. He had questioned him about resurrection from the dead and the greatest commandment. And his answers were straightforward, they were pure. And it says that while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. He did not let the group leave without aiming a logical question for their consideration. And to answer it would have radically altered everything in their lives. It would have changed their entire world view. It would have changed their associations and their friendships. It would have affected their families and their careers. And by the way, it still does. It still does. What do you think about the Christ? Now, this was no new subject for the Pharisees. Especially since the days of David, Jews had looked for the Christ to come. The title means anointed one. Christ means anointed one. And it clearly meant the Messiah that God had promised as the Redeemer of Israel. And when Israel was scattered throughout the ancient kingdoms of Assyria and Babylon, longing for the Messiah increased, And the surge of nationalism during the time of the Maccabeans fueled the expectancy of Messiah. And during this era, Pharisaicism was born, wrapped with messianic fever in infancy, and continued on to the days of Jesus. And so what did they think about the Christ? Now you can be sure they had their opinions. Yet in the face of Jesus Christ, who gave such demonstrative evidence of being from God and who spoke with such unique divine authority, they could say nothing without condemning their own unbelief. And the question was carried with such clear pointers to Jesus Christ that he knew they would not answer. And so he narrowed his opening question to one that would have been a part of any Jewish home in their religious instruction, whose son is he? And the response came quickly, well, the son of David. Safe. They thought themselves to be with such an answer. Everyone knew that God had promised David that one of his descendants would sit eternally upon his throne. His rule would extend to the nations of the world so that his kingdom would have no end. David spoke about it in the Psalms, as did uh, Isaiah and Micah. David's son would be their deliverer. But what did that entail? Being David's greater son, what implications were found in that simple response, which much like the quick responses that we get when we ask questions about Jesus Christ, well, he's God's son, Uh, he's the Savior, Uh, he's Lord, Uh, he's the King. Now, that's all true. But what does that imply? What does that mean for him to be Savior and Lord and King? If Jesus Christ is God's Son, if he is Savior, he is Lord and King, then knowing this affects everything. So we have the, the logical question. Secondly, we have the vital question. And that's why I consider this question, Who is Jesus Christ to be vital to any discussion of Christianity or eternal life or even our purpose in this world? The way you treat the answer to this question will affect you forever. The Pharisees responded, The Son of David, as though that was adequate. But to make such a claim is quite involved. As Jesus quickly points out, It's not a matter of simple family descent. The son was no field general or just a territorial king. David himself called him the Lord. Now our familiarity with that title Lord, we use it often in our discussions as Christians or in our prayers, we use the word Lord. And sometimes our familiarity with it may hinder us. We've grown so accustomed to singing hymns about Jesus Christ as the Lord. It's a part of our religious vocabulary. And, but consider how shocking it was to the Jews of Jesus' day. The word Lord there was used as a respectful title of a dignity and even used in a way that we could use the word Sir. Sir. And that was just not the, way, uh, not the case in the way Jesus had used it with them. That's not the way he was using it. He wasn't to say, you call me sir. No. Matthew writes in Greek, but Jesus spoke in Aramaic using the, ter- the title Adonai. And that name was reserved for the Lord God or the Lord Jehovah. This son of David, Jesus points out, was called Lord by David. In Psalm chapter 8 and verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. David the psalmist goes on to describe the Lord's handiwork in creation of the universe and the crowning creation of man over whom he rules as Lord This was the son of David. And what Jesus impresses upon them is that none of us can be trite with our understanding of who He is. If we call Him Lord, or King, or Christ, or Savior, or any other titles representing His saving rule, then we must consider our response to Him. The Pharisees quickly called the Christ, the Son of David, but he re- they refused to bow their knee to Him. They had developed their own neat little package of what the Messiah would be like and could only accept what they had designed Him to be. In much the same way, many in our own day reject Jesus Christ as He is revealed in the Gospel because He doesn't fit into their self-designed framework as a Savior or Lord. And what do you say that Who do you say that he is? So you have a logical question here. You have a vital question because these are important questions to think about. We can't be so familiar with these terms that we don't think about what they mean. Because, secondly, there's a person to understand. The person to understand. While the Pharisees and the Sadducees asked Jesus questions to try to undermine Him, to trick Him, Jesus asked them questions to force them to think and think upon some shocking realities. The son of David, whom they professed to expect, had to predate King David. By virtue of His authority, He had to be God. This is precisely what Jesus proves to the chagrin of those who had already... Figured it out. Notice first an authoritative voice. Jesus believed in the spirit inspired authority of Scripture. Verse 43, look at it there. It says, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? He quotes the first verse of Psalm 110, one of a number of messianic Psalms. There's also many others Psalm 2, 22, 45, and 72, many others. But the original Hebrew superscript calls it a psalm of David. And while David was the human author, Jesus makes it clear that David spoke this psalm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. No hand emerged from heaven to write the books of Scripture. God used human personalities... He used human experiences and often their own research. He used that. But the Holy Spirit was the one who superintended the personalities and the minds and the creativity and the abilities of each biblical writer to give us the Word of God. Peter tells us, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Of course, we know Paul says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed. We're not dealing with just another inspiring religious book that you'll find down at the Christian bookstore. We're dealing with the Word of God the specific truth that God intended humanity to have that would reveal Him, His purpose for humanity, His demands, His judgments, and thankfully, His way of salvation has come due to the breathing out of God through human personality to give us the Holy Scriptures. Jesus Christ believed that, and that's good enough for me. Ironically, the Pharisees would have agreed about the divine inspiration of Scripture. The problem was they were not looking at the logical conclusions that would be drawn from Scripture concerning the Messiah. And mere belief in the Scripture's inerrancy is not adequate if we fail to be changed by the inerrant Word of God. And so there's the authoritative voice. Secondly, by prophetic declaration. Consider what Jesus pointed out about Christ. Look again at verse 43 and verse 44. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Again, the words here familiar from the opening of Psalm 110. Which, by the way, is the most quoted portion of the Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. Someone has counted 27 times the passage is either cited or alluded to indirectly in the New Testament, in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, Pauline's epistles, Hebrews, and Peter's epistles. And while Jesus Christ set the framework for the interpreting of Psalm 110, the New Testament writers amplified on it and explained Jesus Christ in His kingly and priestly offices. As we consider these words, it's obvious that David reveals to be a real person who will rule as king. To call Him Lord insists on His authority over all creation. His position is clearly one of authority, as well as sitting on the right hand of the ma- majesty on high. His kingly dominion expresses a rule that cannot be overturned or expired by time or overthrown by a revolution. He rules until every enemy is put beneath his feet. The expression comes out of the practice in ancient times of conquering kings, placing the heels on the necks of their conquered enemies. The Psalm, psalmist continues By the Lord saying, rule in the midst of thine enemies. When Jesus Christ declared that the kingdom of God was present, that it had come, He began to fulfill His Old Testament declaration. Though in the midst of His enemies He rules as Lord of all, with a rule manifested by the disciples that bowed the knee to Him as Lord. And it continues on to this day in every part of this globe. I wonder this morning, do you believe the Scriptures are the very Word of God? Do you believe it? If God has promised such a King and such a Lord as Jesus Christ, then we would be even more foolish than the Pharisees to turn away from Him. For as Lord, every person in all of humanity is subject to His rule. And we don't like that. We don't like people telling us what to do. Let alone God. We rebel against that. Every person must one day bow before Him and confess that He is Lord. You may not like to do it today, but someday you'll do it. The confession of Christ as Lord may have cost many of the early Christians their livelihoods and often their lives, but it will satisfy them for the ages of eternity while those denying Christ as Lord to satisfy their own selfish temporal desires will have to endure His wrath for the ages of eternity. They'll be lost for eternity. And yet they will bow. They will bow. So we have an authoritative voice, we have a prophetic declaration, and thirdly, we have Him revealed as Lord. Jesus asked one final question here, His, his last to the Pharisees, as this was His last discussion with them before He went, goes to the cross. And think how the Pharisees had dogged Jesus' steps in attempts to undermine Him, and other times they over openly criticized him, and yet now they have one final question to consider about Jesus Christ. Verse 45. Look at it there, verse 45, "If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? If a thousand years earlier, David had acknowledged and confessed this future son to be the Lord, how could he still be David's son? Matthew uses the phrase, Son of David, seven times in his gospel, with this being the very last one. Notice in Matthew 1.1, he calls him Jesus Christ, the Son of David, as he begins his genealogy of Jesus. uh, There were two blind men who cried after him, Thou Son of David, have mercy on us, in Matthew 9.27. The irony here is that two blind men can see that he is the son of David, but the enlightened religious leaders of his day, they couldn't see it. There's a third usage in chapter 12, verse 23. The crowds that witnessed the power of Jesus Christ in healing and delivering the demon-possessed man said, Is not this the son of David? Even a Canaanite woman who came to him for help with her demon-possessed daughter called him, O Lord, Lord. Thou Son of David, in chapter 15, verse 22. Two more blind men in Matthew twenty thirty, cried out, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Thou Son of David. And the crowds, during the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, hailed Him, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And again the children in the temple shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Matthew 21. And then finally, this last time in Matthew 22, the title is used again, and this time by the Pharisees as they unwittingly proclaim who He is, the Son of David. But how could He be David's Son if He is eternally existent Lord? Paul explains this in Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. He says, concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, notice here, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He is God born of flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 and 15 tells us, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. And so through the incarnation God came to us not as a phantom or a hybrid creature or some kind of weird thing, But he came one of us. God had become had come among them. Jesus was telling the Pharisees, they were gazing upon God, God in the flesh. Every evidence pointed to Him, His miraculous conception and birth, His miraculous power, His power over nature, His words spoken in divine authority, His holy and sinless life, His affirmation by the divine majesty from heaven at His baptism and His transfiguration, His God-satisfying death, and finally, with great exclamation, His resurrection from the dead. Son of David, Lord of all, Sovereign King, He is indeed, and He must be believed upon, or else we have frittered away our lives and cast ourselves into the abyss of God's wrath. God did not send His Son into the world for us to offer our opinions about Him, or to ignore Him, or to waffle in our response to Him. He sent His Son that we might believe, And in believing, have life through Him. Strange silence. Notice it here. Christ had them. The Pharisees knew this as they gathered together in mutual uh, paralysis of heart and tongue at the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Son of David and the Sovereign Lord. And yet I've also seen this paralysis at times. It happens because of the stubbornness of our hearts and the resistance of bending the knee to Christ as King. It sees no need to appeal to Christ as our priest and fails to acknowledge Christ as the prophet, revealing God to us. Think about the scene here before us. There's a refusal to answer. After all, Christ revealed in His four questions, Matthew comments of the Pharisees in verse 46, And no man was able to answer Him a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask Him any more questions. They had mapped out everything that God was supposed to do in the Messiah. Every little detail kind of fit into their pharisaical package. And then God came among them. Christ the Messiah was staring them in the eyes. Each of the evidences needed for believing His deity and His humanity were clear, but they checked their hermeneutics at the door. By the way, that's principles of interpretation, okay? It's a fancy word for how you interpret God's Word. They refused to change their views and their interpretations to submit to the divine evidence. They were sticking with their own presuppositions or their own propositions to about the Messiah, regardless of what God had said, and they would not budge because to do so would do damage to their pride. I'm going to ask you this morning, what is your pride worth when you stand before God the judge? How many among us, do, people do we know, and perhaps even here today, have such pride that they will not bow their knee to Jesus Christ, the Lord, the King? They will not make him Lord of their lives, they will not make him their Savior. Because of pride. A refusal to answer. That's pride. But There's also condemned by the silence. We can say that the Pharisees did not say anything mean-spirited. We can give them credit for that. No, they said nothing critical of what he had spoken and revealed. They just were silent. Their silence in the face of such revelation of Christ as God's promised Messiah condemned them as unbelievers and rebels against God. No one was able to answer him a word. Who is Jesus Christ? Think about how you would respond to that question. Because in reality, each one of us must respond to that question. And we must do so not just with our lips but with our whole being. Look at the words of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? As someone pointed out many years ago, Jesus Christ is either a liar, a lunatic, or He's the Lord. If He's a liar, then disregard Him and His supposedly good news of the gospel. If He's a lunatic, then just laugh at Him as good riddance of a Deranged man, killed on the cross. But, if He's the Lord, the Lord as the Scripture claims, as heaven itself bears witness, then you have no other course in life but to follow Him. Who is Jesus Christ? How would you answer this question ultimately? You see, the way you answer this question ultimately means everything. It's a life and death matter. Now, you would have to agree with me. That's serious, isn't it? We start talking about life or death, that's serious. And I trust this morning you can answer that question. Let's pray. Father in heaven.